My dream was to play professional baseball, but I fortunately, and I said this fortunately, I tore everything in my shoulder when I was in college. So that dream of playing professional never happened, but it took me to the front office of working behind the scenes in baseball. And I realized something very important then. Baseball is pretty boring to watch. And I realized that the game was a little too long, too slow, and too boring, but I was working in a game and I had to be successful and try to get people to come out. So as a general manager at 23 years old, I took over a team with only $268 in the bank account and there were only 200 <laughs> fans coming to the games. And it was a it was a failure. And I had to say, all right, what are we gonna do differently? And I got a lot of inspiration from P.T. Barnum and Walt Disney. And I started reading every book I could on marketing and, and creating attention. And I came up with the idea that said, we can't be a baseball team, we have to be a circus. And I called the owner and I said, what if our players do choreographed dances every single game? What if we have grandma beauty pageants? What about flatulence fun nights and salute to underwear nights? And we just said, let's try it. And uh, 23 started experimenting, had a lot of success there. It went from 200 fans to 2000 fans to selling out games, to end up buying that team later sold it, but then I took on the big adventure of the Savannah, Georgia team, which was an expansion franchise. And we took that over five years ago from sleeping on an airbed, having to sell our house, empty out our savings account, down to our last dollar to now, fortunately sold out every single game, over 4,000 fans a night and a wait list for tickets in the thousands. Hi, just a quick request. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to write a review I'll leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. Thank you for doing this, Jesse. And for those of us who don't know you, tell us who you are. I am a crazy man in a yellow tuxedo that owns a baseball team called the Savannah Bananas. I am a proud <laughs> father and uh, I'm a Sunday Maverick. And my wife, Emily, we own the team together. And uh, we've been having a lot of fun uh, creating this circus-like baseball team and uh, creating a life that we love. Yep. And you're very young, you're in your mid-30s and you own a baseball team. So how did you end up here? Well, owning a baseball team, that was never my dream. My dream was to play professional baseball, but I fortunately, and I said this fortunately, I tore everything in my shoulder when I was in college. So that dream of playing professional never happened, but it took me to the front office of working behind the scenes in baseball. And I realized something very important then. Baseball is pretty boring to watch. And I realized that the game was a little too long, too slow and too boring, but I was working in a game and I had to be successful and try to get people to come out. So as a general manager at 23 years old, I took over a team with only $268 in the bank account and there were only 200 <laughs> fans coming to the games. And it was, a, it was a failure. And I had to say, all right, what are we gonna do differently? And I got a lot of inspiration from P.T. Barnum and Walt Disney. And I started reading every book I could on marketing and, and creating attention. And I came up with the idea that said, we can't be a baseball team, we have to be a circus. And I called the owner and I said, what if our players do choreographed dances every single game? What if we have grandma beauty pageants? What about flatulence fun nights and salute to underwear nights? And we just said, let's try it. And uh, 23 started experimenting, had a lot of success there, it went from 200 fans to 2000 fans to selling out games, to end up buying that team later sold it, but then I took on the big adventure of the Savannah, Georgia team, which was an expansion franchise. And we took that over five years ago from sleeping on an airbed, having to sell our house, empty out our savings account, down to our last dollar to now fortunately sold out every single game, over 4,000 fans a night and a wait list for tickets in the thousands. So it's been a wild journey. That's the Spark Notes version, my friend. Wow. <laughs> and I've read your book and I've listened to your podcasts and certainly I have a lot of questions. But let's start from the very beginning. What was your childhood like and what did your parents do? 
Good question. My father was, he worked at a retail big store over here uh, called Bradley's. And he was equal, he himself up from, you know, working at the store level to going into the corporate, did that for many years. Uh, and then when I was about 10 years old, he's like, my son just loves baseball. How can I do something that can help him? And to give you a context, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. My mother actually had a drug problem and had challenges and I was an only child. And so my father did everything he could for me and left Bradley's, which was a, a great job and ended up buying a baseball club, a baseball facility, wow. not, a, not a team. He bought, it was in from Massachusetts, so very cold up there, south of Boston. So he bought a facility where I could train, uh, hit in the batting cages and work out and pitch off the bullpens. So my dad took that on and I was able to really work out and get better playing for free. So that gives you an idea of my dad. He literally uh, did whatever he could to give me every opportunity to be successful. It was a baseball club. So literally people can come in year round. Now there's still leagues and there's still clinics and camps and lessons, but he became the owner of that and, and ran that for many years. Is still a part owner today. He's been going now for you know almost, almost 35 years. So yeah, so he did that. And that's where I learned a lot about a little bit of entrepreneurship, but also about doing something you love. My dad loved going to the, 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 the facility and doing lessons. My dad, you know, at 50 years old, 55 years old, would coach kids all day and, wow. and come back with even more energy. And I, I saw a lot from that when I was a kid. And when your baseball dream got shattered, you moved into coaching, but later you realized that coaching was not a natural fit for you. And then you transitioned into management roles. So at what point did you realize that your passion was into management and not into coaching? You know, everyone says, you know, find your passion, find your passion and, you know, go do what you're passionate about. Well, sometimes you got to do a lot of things to know what you're passionate about. And yes. so you have to actually experiment. I mean, with your success that you've done over the last year and and with the marketing and with the TikTok and with all the newsletters, you didn't know you wanted to do that five years ago. You know, yeah. we never know until we start dabbling and we start experimenting and we start testing. And so for me, you know, at 20 years old, I never said, I want to run a baseball team. That wasn't my dream. But what happened is I got an email about an internship. I didn't have any other options. And I said, let's take it. Now, I, I did have the option of going into coaching. And I tried that for a little bit. But I realized I'm sitting here in the dugout with the best players in the country. And I'm bored out of my mind. And I was like, so why as well go try to sell something a little bit different, how to create something different. And I think a lot of times we just want to scratch our own itch. You know, create something that we want. Create something that we would like. And, you know, I, I've, I've listened to, you know, Saturday Night Live and Lauren Michaels, who produces Saturday Night Live, which is going on 45 years, one of the most successful shows uh, in the world. Yeah. He goes, I just wanted to create a show that I wanted to watch. And when you think about that, are you creating something that you're proud of, that you're happy, that you're excited, that you want to see? And for me, baseball was so boring as a guy who played it, who understood it, who knew <laughs> I was bored. So I've been on this constant uh, pursuit of making the game more fun and more interesting. And the more I do, the more I want to do because I love it because I'm like, oh, we can still do this. We can still do this. And that's 15 years now of trying to create the best fan experience possible. Right. And you were 23 years old when you became the general manager of Gastonia Grizzlies and you knew that fans were not coming to the stadium to watch games. And then you started coming up with these weird ideas of turning a baseball game into a circus. You would have choreographed dance moves, grand beauty pageants and other stuff. And so what inspired you to take that risk and to try these ideas? Because a lot of people in your position would keep on pushing in the same direction or they would give up entirely. 
So what gave you the inspiration to try all these creative ideas? Nothing to lose. I think one of the most dangerous things you can have is success because it makes you want to protect that success. And I'll tell you, my, my staff and I, and, and, and with the Savannah, we, the Anas, we still struggle with that today. It's like, hey, we've reached all the success. It's, it's harder to take chances. It's harder to experiment because you're afraid of losing it. Right. When I started in Gastonia, you know, the team was losing hundred thousand plus dollars. There was no one coming to the games. If we did something really bad, it, it wouldn't have affected it any worse. It would have been the same as what we had before. Right. So, and having an owner um, who became a mentor to me, because it wasn't because of what he taught me. It was because of what he empowered me to do. He said, Jesse, this is your team, run with it. And I was 23 years old. And so he gave me that opportunity to try promotions that you're right. I mean, salute to underwear night, only 200 people showed up. I mean, <laughs> we did a dig to China night where we buried a, a certificate to China, a flight to China in the infield uh, dirt. And the woman was so upset because she realized there was no flight back and no accommodations. It was a one way <laughs> to China. These created some really interesting reactions from the fans, but we were able to do it and realize that, hey, when you do something, it's not the end of the world. We have such fear because everyone is on a um, pedestal now of the success. You see all the highlights on social media. You know about this. You see the best right. of them, but you don't see the things that didn't work. Like our world's largest tickets, who our fans were like, what are we supposed to do with these giant posters? Where are we going to put them? They don't fit in our pockets. Or <laughs> But that's what made us who we are in this experimenting. So I think, you know, just kind of go back to what you said. It was, it was just the ability to have not fear what would happen, just to have courage to try things and test them out. And that's what makes TikTok and social media and Facebook, what makes it great because, hey, you post something, post something tomorrow, post something the next day. If the one didn't work, who cares? Go to the next one. Right. And that's what's great about social media is that it gives us the opportunity to continue testing things and seeing what works. Right. And you started with about 200 people attending the stadium. And then after a few months, that number started to increase. And now you have all this success. But how long did it take for, say, from the stadium attendance to go from 200 to 1000 maybe? So the first year, yeah, we were around 200. And then I think we went up to about a thousand, then 1200 the following year, then maybe 14 then 1500. Then we got to 2000 in year five or year six. Then I think our peak was around 2400 a night with about three to five sellouts a season um, in an old ballpark. So it was a long run. It was, it was 10 years. And I think that's a, you know, everyone wants immediate success these days. Right. It's a long game. It is a long game. And even in Savannah after our second year and we sold out every single game, We've been doing this for 10 years and with other teams. You know, we had an idea of what we're doing. So it was, uh, it definitely took a lot of time and it took, uh, it took some uh, swings and misses. But, you know, we kept, we kept coming up, coming to bat and kept swinging and we started getting more hits than outs and, and it started working. Right. And uh, when you bought the Savannah Bananas team, it wasn't working in the beginning. So you sold your house, maxed out your credit cards. And uh, what gave you the confidence that you could turn this team around as well, like you had done with the Gastonia Grizzles? I ask that question a lot, and it's so hard for me to answer because, you know, uh, put back in perspective and, and when COVID's starting and it's affecting everyone and no one knows what they're going to do, you have two options. You can really, you know, go and hide and wait, or you can find a way. Right. And the go away and hide and wait was never an option for us. It was always find a way. And I think there's two types of people. The people that has, you know, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to be a spectator. Or the people that say, I'm going to jump into the game and I'm going to start playing. And I could never see us being a spectator. And I always think back, 
And when you look back in 10, 20, 40, 50 years, or you're on your deathbed, do you want to be the person that regrets ever doing something? No, you're never going to regret what you do generally, unless you're do some bad, bad things, <laughs> but, but you're going to regret the things that you didn't do. And so for me, when my wife were sitting there, it's like, Hey, might as well go all in. What, 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 you know, again, we bought this team, we had debt and we went from zero debt to $1.8 million between both the teams and all the other things we had to buy. So we wow. have $1.8 million debt. So what's the other option? Just say, <laughs> Hey, you know, let's, let's hope someone bails us out. No. We're not going to get bailed out. You got to do it. So it's hard for me to answer in a practical way. I think there's people that are built certain ways. And as an entrepreneur, as a creator, as a person that's tested and experimented things, I was like, we got to find a way. We got to create some attention. We got to try everything we can. We got to dig in because even as hard as it is, the toughest times in people's lives are short term. When you think about it, as bad as it is, it's short term, unless you make it long term by talking about it, by thinking about it, by worrying about it. And we said, no, what do we got to do? So what, now what? And we started doing it. And what are the changes you have made or what are the things that you're trying during these uh, COVID times? During COVID, it was, it was very, very simple for us. What an amazing time to make the bananas biggest test kitchen we could ever imagine. And what I mean by that is with no other teams playing, with no real typical traditional ways of governing, we said, let's break every rule. So we said, all right, well, let's test the way the game is played. For years, I've been saying the game is too long, too slow, too boring. So we said, let's test some new rules. So the first thing we tested was a brand new game called Banana Ball. We're literally at the two-hour time limit. You can't step out of the batter's box. If you win the inning, you get a point. So every inning counts, and the first team to five points wins. So all the long innings are taken, are made short. They're faster, all right? You can steal first. If a fan catches a foul ball, it's an out. There's no bunting because bunting we think sucks. All right. We eliminated a lot of the boring things about baseball. And then instead of extra innings, we had a showdown, just like in soccer, a penalty kick. All right. One on one pitcher versus hitter. The hitter Mm -hmm. score. And we said, all right, we've talked about it for a while. Let's test it. So we started rolling it out in front of our fans. Our fans like, this was fun. This was awesome. Then we tested the way the game could be watched. Instead of just having a typical camera showing from home plate, we said, Let's put drones in the middle of the game. That's breaking every rule there is. You can't have a drone going during the game. What if the ball hits it? <laughs> Who cares if the ball hits it? We'll make a new ground rule. Don't question. Let's see if we can create something different. We said, let's mic up players. Well, what if it interferes with the way they hit? They'll figure it out. We won't do it. We'll adjust. And we started doing that. We said, what if we let fans actually determine who's going to come into pitch later in the game? Wow. So the fans during the live stream start determining who's going to pitch. And the first time they chose a pitcher, he let up six runs in the inning he pitched. It was not a good decision by our, by our fans, <laughs> but we let them choose. And we started rolling out experiments on the way you watch the game, the way you play the game. We did a new promotion every single night that we've never done before. We have about 250 promotion skits that some didn't work at all. They were ridiculous. <laughs> but my point is it, it, was, it was a point that said, let's just test everything. What do we have to lose? And we got back to our entrepreneur roots. And I'll tell you, we learned a ton. And now that's leading to what some of our big decisions are moving forward. And I read somewhere that you have uh, removed all ads from the Savannah Banana Stadium. So what are the revenue sources for the team now that you have removed advertisements out of picture? Yeah, we said goodbye to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Have you seen Social Dilemma? No. All right. It's on Netflix and it's staggering. It tells you about the impact of um, social media and how it has on people. Oh, is that the new documentary that talks about people getting addicted to social media? Now, if you remember in that documentary, it says, who is the product? 
Do you remember who the product is? So yeah. like, mm-hmm. who it, it's, it's, it's us. It's yeah. the people. We're the product because they're selling us to every advertiser. That's scary thinking about us as the product. So tell me about this. Every sports team that you go to, and if the marketing money, the advertising money is a substantial part of the team's overall revenue, who's the product? So what does that mean for the fan experience? Don't you think those would be counterintuitive? Right. So what happens if, if all of a sudden you're getting ads for businesses nonstop and there's ads everywhere around the stadium, that takes away from the fan experience. And so our mission is very simple. Name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. Our mission is Fans First Entertain Always. Do we believe that it's fans first to come to a ballpark and be advertised to, sold to, and marketed to? No. No. We made the long game decision to say, you know what? We're going to cut this and we're not going to make our people the product. Our experience is the product. Our shows are the product. Our merchandise is our product. Our food and bev is our product. Those are the things that we are selling. And we're not selling them. We're making them available to buy. No one wants to be sold. People want to buy. Big difference. And so why we made that crazy decision, which no one will probably ever, ever, ever follow us in because it doesn't make sense. From any short term, it doesn't. But all of a sudden, if we have hundreds of thousands of fans who are buying our tickets, buying our merchandise, buying our other products, we'll be okay. And it's already proved that way so far. Right. And Savannah Banana's clips on social media, they go viral very often. So at some point, do you think you'll start live streaming those matches? Yeah, so we do stream the games. So the games are, that's what I was talking about with the drones. Right. And as the mic up, is that what you're referring to, the streaming of the games? Oh, so you're live streaming those games. Yeah, it's, it's Bananas Insider, $5 a month. And wow. so you get all of the games, all of the shows. And then we have a video team that does documentaries, that does other inside shows on the players behind the scenes. And that is put there year round. And so even right now, you know, we've got 500 plus people that are just, the season ended over a month ago, but they're still in Bananas Insiders watching what's coming next from the Bananas. And when you first moved into Savannah, people hated the things that you were trying to do with the team. But when you came up with the name Savannah Bananas, it became a viral sensation and was written about in many news outlets and people loved it. So what were the things that you did behind the scenes during that transition phase from a team being hated to a team being loved and being written about. Yeah, I think I think Jeff Bezos said best. He goes, uh, "You have to be willing to be misunderstood at first. And if you look at anything that's different, unique, that people put themselves out on the limb to do, they are going to be misunderstood. And you know, the easiest way to not get criticized is to play it safe. That's right. the easiest way. And so we didn't have that luxury. And what I mean by that is when we sold only two tickets in our first three <laughs> months, and we were running out, and we ran out of money." Um, we had to be able to create attention. Regular marketing was not working for us. And I believe if you market like everyone else, you're going to get results like everyone else. And so by doing the same marketing, we were just noise like everyone else. So when we had our name, the team contest, we were very specific. We said, we want outrageous, unique, bizarre, fun, and wild names. And we proceeded to get 999 normal, generic names. (laughs) For one, the bananas. And when we looked at each other at that one, we said, oh, we could have a senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas. You know, our, math, our mascot could be split. We could have a male cheerleading team called the Mananas. We could have banana babies before the game that we lift up in a banana costume and sing, nah, something, nah, nah. We thought of all the ideas that we could do with it and say, you know what? That's crazy enough. It might work. And when we announced that, obviously, uh, it created a stir. And as people would say in Savannah, it was not well liked. Whenever I uh, speak, 
And I go, when we first came up with the name, how many people uh, hated it? And most people raised their hands. And for the few people that don't, I said, you're lying because everybody hated it. <laughs> because we, we are the response and I don't blame them. They're like, you know, this is their town. This is their city. This is their only team. And we're willing to name something silly and, and stupid, as people would say, and goofy as the bananas. But again, that's not, we're trying to be silly. We're trying to be goofy. We're trying to be fun. You got to know who you're not for. We weren't for the traditional baseball fans. If we were traditional baseball fans, we would have taken a traditional name, but we were for everyone else. So when you're clear on who you're not for and you're clear who you are for, it makes it very easy to make those decisions. Now, did it suck when we got all the pushback and people were like, the owner should be thrown out of town. You guys are an embarrassment to the city. You'll never sell a ticket. And yeah, but you better believe we saved all those remarks and did a mean tweet video uh, a year later and had our whole staff reading all those mean tweets. And most of those people became ticket holders for us. So uh, wow. you have to get through the criticism as I tell our staff sometimes, hey guys, in the beginning, it's going to suck. It's going to be tough. It's going to be challenging. You have to have the uh, persistence and the courage to be able to get through that because once you get through that, that's when you can have breakthroughs. But most people give up too early. And it would have been very easy, like some teams to say, we made a mistake. We'll change the name back. Or no, we'll keep the name as it was. Or, you know, we, that wasn't an option. We, we had to go crazy. And uh, fortunately, it, it worked. It was number one trending on Twitter the night we launched, which I was like, how is a little college summer <laughs> trending on Twitter? And it was pretty cool that we were able to do that. Wow. <laughs> and you offered an internship to Barack Obama. And then your team adopted a dog and named it Bad Dog. And those two became great PR stories. So who comes up with these awesome ideas in your team? Oh, well, just a lot of them are ideas. I mean, some things just happen that way that, that are coincidence. But yeah, you know, you look at whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And you look at fun, you know, I mean, even we had a, a bat boy, uh, an eight-year-old bat boy. I said, why don't we dress him up as Batman? And it'll actually be like a real bat boy. And, you know, we just keep thinking, you know, you know, can we have, I think we had a, a gentleman that we changed his name. It was in promotions with us, a young guy. We said, let's make his name Cam. And so let's have the kiss cam. So before games, he goes around crowd and people have to kiss him instead of that. <laughs> wow. And so we started just thinking, yeah, we gave away Porta Johns at the games. We gave away colon cleansings at the games. We played in kilts. We started just thinking, all right, again, scratching our own itch. Would this be fun to watch? And yeah. even this past season, if you've heard of Impractical uh, Impractical Jokers, we did Impractical Bananas where we actually let our players and fans come up with ideas of what our players would do during the games. And I'll never forget in the middle of the game, I'm looking out in right field and I see our right fielder lying face down in the outfield while a left-handed hitter's up and he's calling <laughs> balls laying down. I'm like, what is he doing? And then all of a sudden I see him come up to bat the next inning and he's doing laps around the umpire and the catcher looking at his bat saying, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And he did three <laughs> laps around it. It's because his players told them to do it. And I'm like, that's funny. You don't normally see that at a baseball game. And yeah. what's cool is that our players have bought in because they realize, you know what? The game's supposed to be fun. And I think that was a big key for us. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's have fun. And that's what naming the team, the bananas and all the ideas from it, we became a fun brand. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. And uh, what is the process of idea validation in your team? Because you might uh, have 100 ideas and then you might uh, choose 50 of them. So how do you validate which ones to try and which ones to not? Or do you try them all? Yeah, we don't try them all. I think I've probably been vetoed about a thousand times on some of my ideas. I'll still work. I'm still working on them these days. But yeah, I, I think it's it's been a 
it's who we are. It's been a constant say, all right, this is, we are a company that experiments and it's in our vision. It's who we are. It's what we do. So yeah, we have an idea box at the stadium. I have an idea book right here where I literally do, you know, wow. ideas every single day. I write down 10 ideas. And so whatever the ideas are, I mean, we think about them. I mean, it's literally like stadium, stadium, big dreams, a treehouse deck and Airbnb, Savannah Bananas Brewery, a hidden speakeasy, a zip line across the field, a home wow. walk room suite, a banana cabana zone with banana hammocks, a yellow <laughs> road around the ballpark, a banana land kid zone. I mean, these are just, you know, that was just ideas for stadium things. And so we write these ideas and then we start talking about them and talking about them. And we have idea paloozas where we get together and said, all right, who's going to own this idea? As John Spolstra said, who's owned and been president of many teams, who's going to be the idea champion? And you need someone to own it. So when we have an idea palooza, we all come in with three to four ideas and we pitch them. And then we have a yes, maybe, and needs work. And next to each one, we put initials, not of who pitched it, but who wants to own it, who loves it. And then we hold them accountable. So it's not a, you know, a full-fledged process because I think if you put too much process around ideas, that's a good way to kill ideas. You know, if we want to do something, let's do it. Just the other day, literally our president is in a pilgrim costume on a banana boat in the ocean announcing that we're having our fans giving game. And that idea just came out. It's like, might as well put him on a banana boat coming in announcing a game because the pilgrim <laughs> water. And then we said, you know what? We're going to starve our fans for the first 66 minutes, literally starve our fans, no oh, food. No and food. That sounds crazy because in for the 66 pilgrims who made the journey over, you know, they weren't able to eat. There were struggles. There was challenges. That's what Thanksgiving's about. So for the first 66 minutes of our game, no fans are allowed food other than alcohol and maybe some bread rations. <laughs> rations. Does it make any sense? No. It, will it fail? I don't know. But it's an idea and we'll learn from it. Interesting. And uh, Fans First Entertainment is a very culture-driven organization. And when you hire employees, you don't look at their resumes. So what is the onboarding process at Fans First Entertainment? How do you validate that someone you're hiring will fit into your culture? Yeah, first step is we, we share the vision. So if someone's interested in us, we share the vision. So we have a three-year vision of where we want to go, how we're going to challenge the, the typical fan experience and the status quo. We share what we're doing. If you don't want to be a part of where we're going, you're not going to be a good fit. So we share the vision. If that inspires, gets them fired up, gets them excited, then we look for a three-step process. What is your future resume? So not what you've done in the past. We want to know what do you want to do in the future? How does that Whoa. fit with our vision? How does it fit with your own personal vision? Then the fan's first essay. We want to know how do you fit our six core beliefs? And then finally, a video cover letter. And uh, we, want to, we want to see your enthusiasm, your energy. We want to see why you want to be a part of this. And so when you put those three together in the vision, that's a great start for us. Um, and we can tell. You know, I mean, as soon as I, we jumped on the video, we got, I'm like, all right, my man's got a lot of energy. He's fun. He's passionate. He's curious. He's hungry. I can tell that in a few seconds because of the way that you'd show up. And you can tell how someone shows up on a video. And I'll be honest, it's very tough for introverts to mm -hmm. jump into our organization unless when they show up, they're ready to go. Because to be an introvert in our organization, we are forward-facing. We're in front of thousands of fans. Right. Whether we answer the phone, whether they come into our stadium in the off-season, or whether they come to our games. And we want to give people energy. And to give people energy, you need to bring energy. And so introverts, you know, they've had, we've had some that works, but they have to come out of their shell a little bit to work well. So we can see all that in those steps. And then the onboarding is very attentional. Our fans first director, Marie Drenry, she runs it. I mean, we literally teach over and over again, our fans first way, our fans first mission. We say it till we're blue in the mouth. And most organizations, it's here, 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 here. If you are fans first and you know how to entertain always and you fit our core beliefs, 
you'll do a great job. And so we talk about it over and over and over again. What is the three-year vision for Fans First Entertainment and what is your roadmap for getting there? Good. What is our three-year vision for, for our team? Yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on you. Where do you think we should go? I think uh, you could expand to more geographical area areas, maybe India, because in India we don't watch baseball. It is too complex and like you said, maybe too boring. And so we watch cricket and it has longer formats, but there are also shorter formats of cricket as well that are very fast paced. And so maybe your version of baseball would be more interesting to us. I love that. I, 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 we haven't thought about India in our immediate three-year plans, but I like where you're going with that. But if you're already streaming it online, I guess people from all over the globe can watch the game. But it's not the same. And I, we've learned that. And there's a difference. If you and me are having a meal together, having a drink together, or talking together, there's a difference. And, and right. we say the world is going to a digital experience. No, that will be supplemented. We still need the one-on-one -on -one personal human connection where there's no other distractions. So right now, there's lots of other things that you might have on your computer. There's other things going on. If you and me are together, we're going to be together. So for us, our games, when you see next to you and you see an 80-year-old person dancing, hey, baby, and then you see an eight-year-old girl to your right dancing, hey, baby, and then you see 4,000 people singing one song all together and yelling, and then everyone's cheering for the breakdancing first base coach as he's doing the moonwalk across the field in the middle of the game, there's a moment because you're together, and we bring people together. So... I think to answer your question, we'll keep the digital experience because that might introduce more people to what we do. But yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to take the show on the road. You better believe it. All right. And we're, we're going to start this spring and it might be just one small city here in the United States, but then maybe next year it might be two cities, then four cities. And again, we're going to take those small bets. We believe the future of sports, you need to be a 24-7, 365 brand. And what I mean by that is you need to be offering things that are entertaining to your fans 365 days a year, 24-7. The power of TikTok, you know, we posted 11 o'clock at night and people are being entertained at two in the morning. All right? right. The idea of being able to have food and drinks available, you know, Savannah banana beer, Savannah banana cream soda. All right. Having other Savannah banana products that people can experience that are part of the fun and part of what we do in our merchandise. So we're going to expand that and we're going to test it. And do we know if it's all going to work? No. And some of it won't. But you better believe we'll keep coming to bat and trying to see what we can do. And that's that's what's going to be fun for us. So our three-year vision explains where we see our team, where we see our product, with year-round shows at our stadium, playing games in the fall, the winter, the spring. Like we said, we got we got a fans-giving game that's literally a game in November, which <laughs> baseball games in November, but we're playing a game in November. Maybe we have New Year's Eve games, Halloween games, St. Wow. Patrick's games. And so we start having games year-round that anybody can experience a banana show at any point. And so – that's where we plan to go and create a little Disney world at our ballpark, the banana land and make it a place that maybe someone from India will come travel to. And maybe <laughs> we'll get on a flight when it gets safe and come over from the UK and see it. So that's, that's where we vision going. And that's what we talk about. Right. And so you talk about three people who have inspired you, PT Barnum, Bill Weck and Walt Disney. So could you talk about all three of them one by one and maybe share some stories of how they were facing a problem and how they were able to tackle that with creativity? Great question. Well, when I started at 23 and I had no idea what I was going to do, I had to find out from some people and I was kind of running the team. So I read uh, a lot on Bill Beck. Bill Beck was the famous baseball owner in the 50s, 60s and 70s. He was a guy that literally would give 100 hot dogs to one fan in one grandstand and 100 buns to one fan in another grandstand just to see what would happen. I mean, he'd give 12, <laughs> he'd give 12 live lobsters to a fan in the front row to see how they would juggle them 
I mean, he was amazing. He let the fans actually manage a game, a major league game. And in the a grandstand, they could choose whether the team was going to bunt, steal, or hit and run. It was crazy. Wow. <laughs> he was so far ahead of his time. And if he was doing what he did then now, he would be an absolute legend. I mean, you're talking, he'd have more view like this guy is changing the game. So I learned a lot from him. And I learned just the idea that he did everything for the fans and he let the fans I mean, manage a game. That is the definition of fans first. And that's why right. we this year with our digital experience. So um, PT Barnum, man, the art of attention. Whew. I mean, what a showman. And he said the quote, nothing, nothing, something terrible happens without promotion, nothing. And uh, <laughs> he learned the power of attention. So I, I've studied him excessively and what he did is he knew how to reach out and find talent all over the world and bring them in and get them excited from Jenny Lynn to the general Tom Fum to Siamese twins. He brought in all these curiosities and he knew how to promote them and market them. And it was advertising. And he created things that were larger than life. And so from PT Barnum was the opportunity to think big and think, how do you bring an act together and deliver a show that's not just one player and not just one person. It's a whole act of characters. And I think that's what we do at our stadium with our male cheerleading team and our banana nanas and our breakdancing coach and our professional wrestler that's on staff and our professional high-fiver and our circus acts. And you keep going. A lot of things that are added to our show. Um, and then Walt Disney, man. Walt, I mean, what can you say about him? For, for me, uh, you know, vision, you know, it's kind of fun to do the impossible and all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. That man, he got beat up and beat up and beat up. And people didn't realize that when he started as an animator, you know, he had his animation stolen from him. He lost his studio. Then he started doing these short little films that they were making ends meet okay. But he said, let's bet everything we have on the longest animated film in history. No one's ever done it close to that long. And he's like, it's going to cost $2.8 million or whatever it was back then. He didn't have the money, but he, he raised it. He, he mortgaged his house and he said, we're going to bet it all because I believe this is the future. And Snow White turned out to be pretty good. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he said, you know what? I'm going to create Disneyland because you know I want to create a place, place where people, it's not like the carnivals and the theme parks where it's dirty and it's, it's not good people go there and it's a tough environment. And I don't like the movie theaters that you know aren't a good experience either. I'm going to create my own world. And he, he did that. And then he did it again. He had an unbelievable vision to, to think dramatically bigger than anyone else and had the courage to pursue it. And so when you combine the innovativeness, Bill Vec, the way to create attention with P.T. Barnum and the way to have vision with Walt Disney, for me, that's the trifecta. Amazing. And uh, your case study is out in the world and people can see the results of what you're doing. So are there other teams in your league maybe or maybe uh, teams uh, in other leagues uh, that are trying to borrow things from you or learn from you and uh, trying these creative ideas? Yeah, and I've learned from other teams as well. I mean, now I learn a lot more from outside the industry. I learned from the Carnival Cruise Lines and Ritz-Carlton, and I learned from different hospitalities. I mean, every restaurant I go to, I'm like, hmm, what are they doing right? What are they doing different? You know, I try to see all that. But yeah, there's there's sports teams that, I mean, Bill Veck, ha, ha, his son, Mike Veck, owns a bunch of teams and he helped me a lot and he does great things. And John Spolstra does some great things with sports teams. And now I think, yeah, I think some teams watch what we do. They don't candidly like talk to us as much because we're a little too crazy. Not in team, <laughs> you know, we're the only team that has players that do a different choreographed dance every single night from Britney Spears dancing on chairs and doing things that <laughs> players should never do. But yeah, you know, and there's other teams in our league. I mean, there's teams that do things, do things well. I think for us, we just have such a singular focus on the show and the fan experience that, you know, whereas a lot of teams, they talk about sponsorship and they talk about revenue and they talk about tickets. We don't have those conversations as much because we believe if we put on a great show and a great experience, those all take care of themselves. 
So the other teams maybe don't talk to us as much. I don't know if we're as loved, <laughs> a little too crazy, I guess. And uh, what are the examples of companies outside your industry that are uh, fans first and uh, how are they trying to execute their own version of fans first experience? Well, it starts with the industry. I mean, think about all the industries that have really disrupted things. So first, for instance, it's very easy to talk about Amazon. They disrupted the online buying experience. They've made it so easy, so quick, and everything they do now, whether they go into, when they go to Amazon Alexa, they go into the Kindle back in the day, they go into any of those, it's a better experience. Netflix, yeah. Netflix, very simple. Netflix was early and it almost crippled the business. As, as I shared in my book, they saw the future was not about DVDs. The future was not about uh, late fees like Blockbuster had. The future was not about the bad experience. The future was about giving everything for one fee. And you notice on Netflix, there's no ads. All right. There's no ads mm-hmm. on Netflix. It's a better experience. Cruise ships. And I'm not going to say one particular one. I, I've done Carnival more than others. But they said, you know what? Why can't we have all the food and all the entertainment included? So think about that, for instance. How many places do you go or can you go where all the food and the entertainment are included in one price? Mm, very few. Very few. And they, they learned that. And so what did we do when we came to Savannah? Every single ticket is all-inclusive and includes all your entertainment. And we became the only team. You know, Some other teams did all-you-can-eat all packages, but then they'd have regular tickets that weren't all-you-can-eat. We've made every single ticket all-inclusive. Because I don't wow. think if anybody comes to our ballpark, you should be able to have a hot dog, you could have a burger, a chicken sandwich, soda, water, popcorn, and a cookie. All right, You should be able to have that. And I think the ideas of nickeling, diming people at sporting events should be over, but they're not. You know why they're not going to be? Because it's too much money for these other mm-hmm. owners. They think it's short term, but we're playing the long game of creating more fans. So from Carnival Cruise Line, I was like, that just makes sense. You can buy your alcohol and you can buy merchandise and you can buy other excursions. You can buy other stuff at our ballpark, but you get the you get the baseball generic food but you also get the amazing show all for one price. So you combine all that and, and we've learned kind of a lot on, on what is the best fan experience. What do you want? You know, when you go to a restaurant, what do you want? You know, we want to be treated well, but you want, you want a good price, you want a good food, you want good experience. You know, it, it, it's very simple, but it's very hard. That's the big difference. It's a very simple concept, but it's very hard to have that attention to that, that customer and to love your customers more than you love your product. That's a big, big challenge. And that's what we try to focus on. Right. And you are a voracious reader. And even in your book, Find Your Yellow Tux, after every chapter, you've given a list of books that the readers can read. And so what are the books that have and what are the podcasts and books that have inspired you? And uh, talk to us about some of the lessons that you've taken from them. And you have uh, you, you try to apply those lessons in your day to day life while running fans first entertainment. Yeah, I mean, reading's been huge. If you can find me a great leader that's not a great reader, I'd be shocked, all right? Because the greatest leaders are constantly pushing themselves to learn and get better. And I was fortunate that I just took that initiative because I didn't know any better. (laughs) You know, (laughs) when you're running a baseball team and you have no idea how to do anything, the only idea you could think about is reading. And there weren't any real, there weren't really many sports books about how to run baseball teams or football. You know, a lot of people in the sports industry don't, don't write books. And so... I started reading business books and started reading, you know, great books like Built to Last by Jim Collins and, you know, reading about Starbucks and Onward and, and, and pour, you know, Hard Into It by Howard Schultz. And I started reading books about Amazon and, and great marketers and great customer experience. And I was like, wow, this could just be applied to a baseball team. And so we just started trying to put all that in and, 
you know, now our company, our, you know, our staff reads and gets paid uh, on Better Book Club. And we do, we do uh, monthly uh, book club meetings where we actually all read a book together. And it, it, it teaches that at a young age, the idea of continually learning to continually get better. And that's been kind of a mindset that we've taken. And it's part of one of our core beliefs. It's growing and hungry. You know, our two glass core beliefs, the fans first way is growing and hungry. If you're not reading, if you're not learning, if you're not listening to podcasts, how are you really growing and hungry? If you don't care that much to push yourself to get better. Could you elaborate on the book club within your own company? Like uh, are employees required to read a certain number of books? And uh, what are the positive changes that you've seen after you have applied this particular uh, framework in your company? Sure. Arnie Malham, great entrepreneur here in the States and an author, started the Better Book Club. And I thought it was fascinating. Any book on Amazon, any book, you name it, you can put in and it's, they have it on there and you can ask a few questions and for, the, for the book report. And once you do the book report, you start paying them. He started doing that with his company, he started paying people to read. He, he was blown away by how much people started reading. You know, 50 bucks here, 75 bucks here, 100 bucks. And so we started doing that, geez, three, four, five years ago. And I, we paid out thousands of dollars to our team. And now what I have noticed has changed because it's become not as big of a deal that the desire to read for money has, has lowered after three, four, five years. So we started doing one book that we read as a team. And that collaboration has brought us closer together. So, you know, over the last six months, we've read probably four books as a team. And, you know, Thursdays, four o'clock, we'll get together after two chapters and we'll just jam. All right, what'd you get from this? What'd you get from that? And everyone talks. And we all get ideas. Hey, what, what can we apply? What's something we could do from this? And it gets us talking. And more than anything, it brings us together. And so obviously during COVID, we did this on, uh, on a Zoom. And then now back when we're at the stadium, we'll do this together. So uh, it's huge. I, I now believe more in the reading as a team because I think it's, it's much more collaboration and you can reference things together. So like, you know, we read the book about uh, Southwest Airlines. We read a book about Virgin. We read a book about BrewDog, the the, uh, the brewery, which was fascinating to us because they were a real underdog. And we'll say, hey, remember how BrewDog did that? Hey, it's kind of like with Southwest. We could do that. And it just brings us together talking about it. Wow. And so you're doing this on Zoom with all the team members. Yeah. Do, oh, you said, did we do it on Zoom? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we did it right on Zoom. And it was very, so we would, when we were at home every day because of shelter in place, we did a chapter a day. So we would wow. we literally go on and every day we'd get on at noon. It was a uh, it was a uh, bananas for lunch, and so the group would get together right at noon and we'd say, all right, let's jam on this chapter, guys. And people would talk and we'd take notes. And you had to ha- be accountable because everyone talked. If you don't have anything to say, that wasn't that good. Very interesting. <laughs> and somebody like me would love to join that conversation. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And again, I think um, learning is one thing, but learning together is a much bigger thing. And I think mm. you learn together, you feel a part of something. And I think we all want to feel like we belong or a part of something. And uh, in school, we are forced to learn together. But if you can get to a point where in business that you're all driven towards the same vision, the same goal, the same pursuit, then you love learning together and it becomes different. And I think we're getting closer to the, the loving learning together than it was like for many people back at school. And from being a voracious reader, you went on to write your own book. So tell us the story behind that. Long story short, when I was on my airbed with my wife, Emily, and we were struggling and we went to Walmart and would go grocery shopping for just $30 for a whole week. Now, that's not a lot of good food for $30. It was bad. Um, we were struggling so bad, but we read the book Profit First. So we were like, at that point, 
you know, solve your own problem, scratch your own itch. I'm reading, how do we get profitable? How do we even make money? And there was uh, by Mike McCallitz, who'd become a very close friend of mine. I, there was a whole chapter on, you need to enjoy saving more than you enjoy spending. And it's such a simple concept. Right. But everyone loves to spend. Like, let's go buy this. Let's go right. buy this. You need to enjoy saving more than spending. And it's like, ooh, one more day. Tell yourself one more day. So for instance, we had, I had phone chargers that were falling apart because they were so old. And they, <laughs> I could literally buy a $20 phone charger, but I told myself one more day, one more day, one more day. And that mindset single-handedly got us out of the hole. Once we named the team of bananas, created the tension, we started making revenue. And by that mindset, it saved us thousands of dollars personally and with our team. Instead of doing the $1 ticket fee company, like everyone else, we created our own little ticket company that we worked with and saved hundred thousand plus dollars. We literally said, save money, save money, save money. And it was so successful that I, I sent a thank you letter to Mike and he called me immediately. You know, the author of Profit First, he goes, Jesse, this is amazing. Can you come on my podcast? I go, sure. And I don't have any podcasts. I go on his podcast. And he's like, oh man, that was so cool. Can you be the keynote speaker of my event, ProfitCon? I go, sure. Why oh, not? Boy. So I became the keynote speaker of his event. Now I hadn't given a big keynote speech ever, but uh, they were, they're like, what's the topic of your speech? And I, I said, ah, you know, well, about standing out and being different. They're like, you wear a yellow tux, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, and then we were like, back and forth. It's like, what about find your yellow tux? And so everyone can find, you know, what makes them. I was like, let's do it. So I wrote a speech, find your yellow tux. And I'm in the room. This is in New Jersey. And it's about 200 accountants. So think about this. A baseball entertainer guy and a yellow tuxedo with financial accountants, right? <laughs> Not my perfect audience at all. Right. And I, I gave the speech. I went up there, fired up. And I received uh, one of the longest standing ovations I've ever received. And about the standing ovation, I walked off the stage and I was like, wow, you know, this was useful for them. This was helpful. And Mike and a few other people said, man, you got to put that in a book. So I said, all right, I might as well share it in a book and didn't know how what I was doing, but I put it in a book and, and there we are. I was going to touch on your thank you experiment, but since you've already talked about it, could you just elaborate on how that has helped you build deeper connections with people? or maybe how it has helped uh, open more business opportunities for you? I think especially now in these times when people can have you know, mental challenges, and obviously we know that you know, depression is more and people are more isolation. Isolation is dangerous and, and it can be really tough. The one thing that, I, I, that has always taken me out of bad spots mentally has been gratitude. It is always gratitude. And I never knew that until I started the thank you experiment in 2016 and I had this idea of writing one thank you letter every day for the year. And like anything, I, was, I had no idea how I was going to do it. I was like 365 people. I don't, I don't even know that many people. How am I going to thank 365? <laughs> but I think you got to start before you're ready. And so I said, I just want to try it. This is an experiment. So I wrote down all the people I wanted to thank you. Teachers, uh, coaches, authors, family members, friends, coworkers, people that have made an impact in my life. And I got to about like, 45 people. And I was like, I got a long ways to go. But I said, just, <laughs> just start. So I started writing the letters and, you know, I wrote one to one of my English teachers, my sophomore English teacher. And she wrote back a four page letter and said, wow. She goes, I've taught for 30 years. I've never received a handwritten letter like that before. Wow. And was, wow. And then I wrote one to Simon Sinek, you know, obviously so the, the yes. huge empire and how great leaders inspire action start with why. And uh, mm -hmm. I get driving to, 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 to lunch one day and I see an unknown phone number. And this was back when you answered unknown phone numbers. And I answered, I said, hello, this is Jesse. He goes, Jesse, it's Simon Sinek here. I go, shut up. Uh, shut up. <laughs> he goes, no, it's Simon Sinek. 
And he spent one minute and 41 seconds on the phone with me. I remember it vividly and just told me how much that letter inspired him. And that's why he does what he does. And I'll never forget that. And it changed my life. And so every morning, one of the first things I do, I wake up and I write my thank you letter. And so it's every day I, I do it. And so now it's been, geez, five years later and uh, thousands of thank you letters. And it's the single best thing I do in my day. And it takes me out of a spot of focusing on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing, but just telling someone they made an impact in my life. And I challenge anybody, if you can just write one tomorrow or write seven for a week, do it. it will, it's, it's the most selfish thing you can do. Not selfless, selfish thing because of the impact it makes on you because of how good you feel that you're making someone else feel good. And in your book, you mentioned this particular book, Miracle Morning, and how it completely transformed your life once you read it and started applying the lessons from that book in your daily life. So could you talk us, talk to us about uh, your day-to-day -day routine and some of the lessons that you have taken from that book and that you practice daily? Yes, Hal Elrod, Miracle Morning, and, and Hal... Wow, what a great story! Um, so yeah, he 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 almost died twice. One in a in a, a car accident. Um, he's actually pronounced dead at the scene. And another one from serious depression, where he considered uh, taking his own life. And he said he needed to change his his life, his his rituals. So he developed what was called the lifesavers. And uh, the savers, the the acronym S is for silence, A is for affirmation, uh, V is for visualization, E is for exercise, R is for reading, and S is for scribing or writing. And so I, I have my, I read that book and in 2015, January, 2015, I started it and I actually have my note. I wrote down the savers and I remember the first day I was sitting there, I was like, I'm not good at silence. This isn't really good. I couldn't handle <laughs> it. I'm like, I'm just supposed to sit here. It's kind of like meditation, which I know a lot of people are, and I've heard amazing things. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't at that point. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, affirmations. All right. Just tell myself. I'm I was like, I, I kind of struggled with that. But then I, I started writing and journaling. <sighs> One of the best things I've ever done. Here's my here's my journal. Every day I write in my journal. So I started writing from that. And then I started working out every morning consistently. And I started doing running. And I started doing different workouts in the house. And then I started uh, reading and, and listening to podcasts. And I'll tell you, a day hasn't passed since then that I haven't done some, done, done some form of that. So my mornings all wake up. Thank you letter is number one. Write my thank you letter. I read. I read and walk. I'm a weird guy that like I walk around as I'm reading to get steps in. Oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, get people walk down and like saw me in like the kitchen just walking in a circle while reading. It's very, very weird. To walk. <laughs> I, I read, I read, walk. Uh, I walk, read, whatever it is. And then I write. I write in my journal and then I do my 10 ideas. And uh, then I go for a run every morning while listening to a podcast. And it's usually a business podcast. And that's like getting my vegetables for the day. I get a little bit more inspiration, get some more ideas. And then I come back and I'm ready to start the day. And that's worked for me. I think everyone has their own. But I'll tell you, I win the day. If, if I can look at the end of the day, I, I've, I've done something creative. I've done something to learn. I've done something to grow. Uh, and I've done something for my mental and physical health. That's a win. What else do I need to do in the day? And so you right. take that mindset. And then the one other thing I share at the end of the night, gratitude is huge. My wife and I, uh, we learned this from Neil Prashrika, the happiness equation. He does rose, rose, thorn, bud. We eliminated thorn, but uh, that's how positive we are. But it's rose, rose, bud. Uh, a rose is something great that happened during the day. And a bud is something that you look forward to. And I'll tell you, we have not missed that in about two years. So before we go to bed, I turn to my wife and I say, rose. And she says, you know, today picking up Maverick from school, he ran and was so excited. He grabbed me and we went, 
and, and I'll share it. Hey, I had this amazing call with, you know, actually, I had, it was amazing. All right. <laughs> we talked about what energy. He loves what we're doing. He's so passionate. That was a rose for me today. And then a bud is something you're looking forward to. And so when you start your day with gratitude and finish your day with gratitude, it's hard to be upset and it's hard to be frustrated. It's hard to be worried because you're always having things that you are grateful for. And so that's part of something that we do morning and night. Right. And what are your favorite podcasts? Uh, learning leader, Ryan Hawk. I love Ryan. We've got close. I went on his show about a year and a half ago, but he is fascinating. I'm one of the most curious, hungry, um, driven leaders I've ever met. And he prepares more than anyone I've seen for a podcast. I mean, he takes notes and notes and notes. I mean, we talked about me going on a show and about six months later, he's like, I'm ready for you. And, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable preparation that goes goes into it. I love him. Donald Miller, story brand. Great, 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 great leader. You confuse, you lose is what he says. And he keeps his messages simple. A great interviewer, great questions. Enjoy entree leadership. I'll listen to from time to time. So I, I have a I have a group. I love how leaders lead by David Novak, the former CEO of Yum Brands. He's amazing. He just interviewed Tom Brady in a business context, which is really interesting wow. to hear. So, so yeah, there's a lot of great shows out there. What I do is I go deep on a person or a subject. So for instance, I'm fascinated by Lauren Michaels with SNL right now. So I search every Lauren Michaels podcast and video there is about him so I can learn everything about him and then apply it. A lot of times we go from idea to idea to idea. I go yes. to a subject and a person and that really helps me really narrow down on it. Interesting. And uh, I read your book in the month of February or March maybe and this was before I started posting on my TikTok account. And I had been reading a lot of books and uh, listening to a lot of podcasts and seeing people build their own businesses. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I wanted to connect with these people and I wanted to talk to them and learn from them. And uh, that was my motivation for starting the podcast. But you have your own podcast as well. So what was your motivation for starting the podcast? Yeah, connection. Connection, 100%. About three, four years ago, I realized that... Uh, I wanted to surround myself with uh, people that were inspiring, that were you know people that were a couple steps ahead of me, that were doing amazing things that I could learn from. And it wasn't a goal necessarily to you know grow the podcast, or it was really just hey, scratch my own itch. I know I've talked about that for a while, but I'll tell you, when you scratch your own itch, sometimes you can create amazing things that other people enjoy as well. If if you like something, there's a good chance someone else may like it. And so I, I tried to do that and build relationships, build connections. And yeah, it's, it's uh, ended up getting a lot more listeners than I imagined. But, you know, again, it's, it's not a, that's not the focus. And your focus should never be a metric. Your focus should be, you know, what, can you, what are you looking to do? Be very clear on, on your, your why and your what. And if you're clear on that, then you should be very happy with whatever the results are. Right. And if people want to learn more about you or maybe connect with you, what is the best place to do that? If you search Yellow Tux, you'll find me anywhere. I'm the only Yellow Tux guy out there. But yeah, LinkedIn's my main platform. But you've got me intrigued on TikTok. You know, the Savannah Bananas are taking over TikTok. So we're, I might get on there. You might inspire me to put a few videos and start oh, rocking. Please do. <laughs> I know. You inspired me, my friend. So yeah, but just search. And I always try to respond. If anybody has a question, you know me. You, you sent me some, yeah. you some cool videos. I responded right away. I was very impressed. Uh, yeah. So reach out. Don't be afraid. I'll help in any way. And I'll finish with this. I said this is, uh, you know, great lessons Jim Collins learned from Peter Drucker. He said, Peter Drucker turned to Jim and said, you keep asking about how you want to be so more successful. That's not the right question. The right question is how do you become more useful? Wow. And if you start, if we all stop focusing on what do we do to become more successful and how do we become more useful, the success will take care of itself. <laughs>